0: Section 9 of Gallagher and Other Stories by Richard Harding Davis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. There were ninety and nine. Part 1. Young Herringford, or the Goodwood Plunger, as he was perhaps better known at that time had come to monte carlo in a very different spirit and in a very different state of mind from any in which he had ever visited the place before he had come there for the same reason that a wounded lion or a poisoned rat for that matter crawls away into a corner that it may be alone when it dies he stood leaning against one of the pillars of the casino with his back to the moonlight and with his eyes blinking painfully at the flaming lamps above the green tables inside he knew they would be put out very soon and as he had something to do then he regarded them fixedly with painful earnestness as a man who is condemned to die at sunrise watches through his barred windows for the first grey light of the morning that queer, numb feeling in his head, and the sharp line of pain between his eyebrows, which had been growing worse for the last three weeks, was troubling him more terribly than ever before, and his nerves were thrown off all control, and rioted at the base of his head and at his wrists, and jerked and twitched as though it seemed to him they were striving to pull the tired body into pieces and to set themselves free. He was wondering whether if he should take his hand from his pocket and touch his head he would find that it had grown larger, and had turned into a soft, spongy mass which would give beneath his fingers. He considered this for some time, and even went so far as to half withdraw one hand, but thought better of it, and shoved it back again as he considered how much less terrible it was to remain in doubt than to find that this phenomenon had actually taken place the pity of the whole situation was that the boy was only a boy with all his man's miserable knowledge of the world and the reason of it all was that he had entirely too much heart and not enough money to make an unsuccessful gambler If he had only been able to lose his conscience instead of his money, or even if he had kept his conscience and won, it was not likely that he would have been waiting for the lights to go out at Monte Carlo. But he had not only lost all of his money and more besides, which he could never make up, but he had lost other things which meant much more to him now than money and which could not be made up or paid back, even at a usurious rate, he had not only lost the right to sit at his father's table, but the right to think of the girl whose place in Surrey ran next to that of his own people, and whose lighted window in the north wing he had watched on those many dreary nights when she had been ill from his own terrace across the trees in the park. And all he had gained was the notoriety that made him a byword with decent people, and the hero of the race tracks and the music halls. He was no longer young Herringford, the eldest son of the Herringfords of Surrey, but the Goodwood Plunger, to whom fortune had made desperate love, and had then jilted and mocked and overthrown. He looked back at it now and remembered himself as he was then. It seemed as though he was considering an entirely distinct and separate personage, a boy whom he liked to think, who had had strong, healthy ambitions and gentle tastes. He reviewed it passionlessly as he stood staring at the lights inside the casino, as clearly as he was capable of doing in his present state and with miserable interest how he had laughed when young norton told him in boyish confidence that there was a horse named siren in his father's stables which would win the goodwood cup how having gone down to see norton's people when the long vacation began he had seen siren daily and had talked of her until two every morning in the smoking-room and had then stayed up two hours later to watch her take her trial spin over the downs he remembered how they used to stamp back over the long grass wet with dew comparing watches and talking of the time in whispers and said good-night as the sun broke over the trees in the park and then just at this time of all others when the horse was the only interest of those around him from lord norton and his whole household down to the youngest stable-boy and oldest gaffer in the village he had come into his money and then began the thin and still inexplicable plunge into gambling and the wagering of greater sums than the owner of siren dared to risk himself the secret backing of the horse through commissioners all over england until the boy by his single fortune, had brought the odds against her from sixty to zero down to six to zero. He recalled with a thrill that seemed to settle his nerves for the moment the little black specks at the starting post and the larger specks as the horses turned the first corner. The rest of the people on the coach were making a great deal of noise, he remembered. But he— who had more to lose than any one or all of them together had stood quite still with his feet on the wheel and his back against the box-seat and with his hands sunk into his pockets and the nails cutting through his gloves the specks grew into horses with bits of colour on them and then the deep muttering roar of the crowd merged into one great shout and swelled and grew into sharper quicker impatient cries as the horses turned into the stretch with only their heads showing toward their goal some of the people were shouting firefly and others were calling on vixen and others who had their glasses up cried trouble leads but he only waited until he could distinguish the Norton colours, with his lips pressed tightly together. Then they came so close that their hooves echoed as loudly as when the horses gallop over a bridge, and from among the leader Siren's beautiful head and shoulders showed like a sealskin in the sun, and the boy on her back leaned forward and touched her gently with his hand, as they had so often seen him do on the downs, and Siren as though he had touched a spring leaped forward with her head shooting back and out like a piston-rod that has broken loose from its fastening and beats the air while the jockey sat motionless with his right arm hanging at his side as limply as though it were broken and with his left hand moving forward and back in time with the desperate strokes of the horse's head siren wins! cried norton with a grim smile and siren the mob shouted back with wonder and angry disappointment and siren the hills echoed from far across the course young herringford felt as if he had suddenly been lifted into heaven after three months of purgatory and smiled uncertainly at the excited people on the coach about him it made him smile even now when he recalled young norton's flushed face and the awe and reproach in his voice when he climbed up and whispered why cecil they say in the ring you've won a fortune and you never told us and how griffith the biggest of the bookmakers with the rest of them at his back came up to him touched his hat resentfully and said you'll have to give us time sir i'm very hard hit and how the crowd stood about him and looked at him curiously and the certain royal personage turned and said who not that boy surely then how on the day following the papers told of the young gentleman who of all others had won a fortune thousands and thousands of pounds they said getting back sixty for every one he had ventured and pictured him in baby clothes with the cup in his arms or in an eton jacket and how all of them spoke of him slightingly or admiringly as the goodwood plunger he did not care to go on after that to recall the mortification of his father whose pride was hurt and whose hopes were dashed by the sudden mad freak of fortune nor how he railed at it and provoked him until the boy rebelled and went back to the courses where he was a celebrity and a king the rest is a very common story fortune and greater fortune at first days in which he could not lose days in which he drove back to the crowded inns choked with dust sunburnt and fagged with excitement to a riotous supper and baccarat and afterward went to sleep only to see cards and horses and moving crowds and clouds of dust day spent in a short covert coat with a field-glass over his shoulder and with a pasteboard ticket dangling from his buttonhole. and then came the change that brought conscience up again and the visits to the jews and the slights of the men who had never been his friends but whom he had thought had at least liked him for himself even if he did not like them and then debts and more debts and the borrowing of money to pay here and there and threats of executions and with it all the longing for the fields and trout springs of surrey and the walk across the park to where she lived this grew so strong that he wrote to his father and was told briefly that he who was to have kept up the family name had dragged it into the dust of the racecourses and had changed it at his own wish to that of the boy plunger, and that the breach was irreconcilable. Then this queer feeling came on, and he wondered why he could not eat, and why he shivered even when the room was warm or the sun shining, and the fear came upon him that with all this trouble and disgrace his head might give way and then that it had given way this came to him at all times and lately more frequently and with a fresher more cruel thrill of terror and he began to watch himself and note how he spoke and to repeat over what he had said to see if it were sensible and to question himself as to why he left and at what it was not a question of whether it would or would not be cowardly it was simply a necessity the thing had to be stopped he had to have rest and sleep in peace again he had boasted in those reckless prosperous days that if by any possible chance he should lose his money he would drive a hansom or emigrate to the colonies to take up the shilling. He had no patience in those days with men who could not live on in adversity and who were found in the gun-room with a hole in their heads, and whose family asked their polite friends to believe that a man used to firearms from his school days had tried to load a hair-trigger revolver with the muzzle pointed at his forehead. He had expressed a fine contempt for those men then, but now he had forgotten all that, and thought only of the relief it would bring, and not how others might suffer by it. If he did consider this, it was to conclude that they would quite understand, and be glad that his pain and fear were over. Then he planned a grand coup, which was to pay off all his debts and give him a second chance to present himself a supplicant at his father's house if it failed he would have to stop this queer feeling in his head at once the grand prix and the english horse was the final coup on this depended everything the return of his fortunes the reconciliation with his father and the possibility of meeting her again it was a very hot day he remembered and very bright but the tall poplars on the road to the races seemed to stop growing just at the level with his eyes below that it was clear enough but all above seemed black as though a cloud had fallen and was hanging just over people's heads He thought of speaking of this to his man, Walters, who had followed his fortunes from the first, but decided not to do so, for, as it was, he had noticed that Walters had observed him closely of late, and had seemed to spy upon him. The race began, and he looked through his glass for the English horse in the front, and could not find her, and the Frenchman beside him cried, Frou, frou, as Fru fru passed the goal he lowered his glasses slowly and unscrewed them very carefully before dropping them back into the case then he buckled the strap and turned and looked about him two freshmen who had won a hundred francs between them were jumping and dancing at his side he remembered wondering why they did not speak in english then the sun changed to a yellow nasty glare as though a calcium light had been turned on the glass and colours and as he pushed his way back to his carriage leaning heavily on the servant's arm and drove slowly back to paris with the driver flecking his horses fretfully with his whip for he had wished to wait and see the end of the races he had selected monte carlo as the place for it because it was more unlike his home than any other spot and because one summer night when he had crossed the lawn from the casino to the hotel with a gay party of men and women they had come across something under a bush which they took to be a dog or a man asleep and one of the men stepped forward and touched it with his foot and had then turned sharply and said take those girls away and while some hurried the women back frightened and curious he and the others had picked up the body and found it to be that of a young russian whom they had just seen losing with a very bad grace at the tables there was no passion in his face now and his evening dress was quite unruffled and only a black spot on the shirt-front showed where the powder had burnt the linen. It had made a great impression on him then, for he was at the height of his fortunes, with crowds of sycophantic friends, and a retinue of dependents at his heel. And now that he was quite alone, and disinherited by even those sorry companions, there seemed no other escape from the pain in his brain but to end it and he sought this place of all others as the most fitting place in which to die so after walters had given the proper papers and checks to the commissioner who handled his debts for him he left paris and took the fresh train for monte carlo sitting at the window of the carriage and beating a nervous tattoo on the pane with his ring until the old gentleman at the other end of the compartment scowled at him. But Herringford did not see him, nor the trees and fields as they swept by, and it was not until Walters came and said, "'You get out here, sir,' that he recognized the yellow station and the great hotels on the hill above. It was half-past eleven, and the lights in the casino were still burning brightly." He wondered whether he would have time to go over to the hotel and write a letter to his father and to her. He decided, after some difficult consideration, that he would not. There was nothing to say that they did not know already, or that they would fail to understand. But this suggested to him that what they had written to him must be destroyed at once before any stranger could claim the right to read it he took his letters from his pocket and looked them over carefully they were most unpleasant reading they all seemed to be about money some begged to remind him of this or that debt of which he had thought continuously for the last month while others were abusive and insolent each of them gave him actual pain one was the last letter he had received from his father just before leaving paris and though he knew it by heart he read it over again for the last time that it came too late that it asked what he knew now to be impossible made it none the less grateful to him but that it offered peace and a welcome home made it all the more terrible Quote, I came to take this step through young Hargraves, the new curate, his father wrote, though he was but the instrument in the hands of Providence. He showed me the error of my conduct toward you, and proved to me that my duty and the inclination of my heart were toward the same end. He read this morning for the second lesson the story of the prodigal son and i heard it without recognition and with no present application until he came to the verse which tells how the father came to his son when he was yet a great way off he saw him it says when he was yet a great way off and ran to meet him he did not wait for the boy to knock at his gate and beg to be let in but went out to meet him, and took him in his arms, and led him back to his home. Now, my boy, my son, it seems to me as if you had never been so far off from me as you are at this present time, as if you had never been so greatly separated from me in every thought and interest. We are even worse than strangers, for you think that my hand is against you that i have closed the door of your home to you and driven you away but what i have done i beg you to forgive to forget what i may have said in the past and only to think of what i say now your brothers are good boys and have been good sons to me and god knows i am thankful for such sons and thankful to them for bearing themselves as they have done but, my boy, my firstborn, my little Cecil, they can never be to me what you have been. I can never feel for them as I feel for you. They are the ninety and nine who have never wandered away from the mountains, and who have never been tempted, and have never left their home for either good or evil. But you, Cecil, though you have made my heart ache until I thought, and even hoped it would stop beating, and though you have given me many, many nights that I could not sleep, are still dearer to me than anything else in the world. You are the flesh of my flesh and the bone of my bone, and I cannot bear living on without you. I cannot be at rest here or look forward contentedly to a rest hereafter unless you, or by me and hear me unless i can see your face and touch you and hear your laugh in the halls come back to me cecil to herringford and the people that know you best and know what is best in you and love you for it i can have only a few more years here now when you will take my place and keep up my name i will not be here to trouble you much longer but my boy while i am here come to me and make me happy for the rest of my life there are others who need you cecil you know whom i mean i saw her only yesterday and she asked me of you with such splendid disregard for what the others standing by might think and as though she dared me or them to say or even imagine anything against you you cannot keep away from us both much longer surely not you will come back and make us happy for the rest of our lives end of section nine